Tacos the other night and uh, in San Clemente. It was Friday night, and uh, I was standing in line there going to order, and there were a group of people behind me, and they had just seen the movie, and they were talking about how great it was, and they were sharing how it kind of differed from the book in different places. They were having a big discussion. So they said some of their friends didn't really like the book. Some did. So this is something that is in regular conversation today. I mean, people are going to see this movie. Uh, The book has really already been, I think, over 40 million books have been printed. And it's been translated into over 40 languages now. So this is a worldwide phenomenon that's particularly having an impact here in America. I know that one in three Canadians today believe that there is a physical descendant of Jesus walking the earth today. And we know that 53% of Americans who have read the book say it has been helpful to them in their personal spiritual growth and understanding. That's the kind of impact that it's having on people's lives. I think the big question that comes out of this that we need to talk about as Christians and as we talk with other people is this question. How can we find the truth? How can we find the truth? That's the big question in this book. You'll see it everywhere that, that uh, the book is around or any sort of promotional stuff. They say, seek the truth, seek the truth, seek the truth. Well, how is it that we actually can find the truth? That's the big question, actually, of our time today. That's the big question in universities today. It's a big question everywhere. We call it epistemology. How do you know that something is real? How do you know that something is true? That is the pressing question of our time. Why is it such a big question today? Let me show you. There's, first of all, what we call the modern search for truth. The modern search for truth. And that is, truth is collectively discovered through the application of human reason. That is, as a group, we can use our brains and our thinking, and we can go out and measure things, and together we can come up with what the truth is. If we just work hard enough at it. So we concentrate on facts, science, measurements, Unfortunately, the modern search for truth has even reached the extreme of being anti-supernatural. So anything that has to do with God or anything else is typically pressed out in that kind of search. And here's the important part. When it comes to history, if I were going to sit down and I'm going to write about history, something that's happened in the past, we actually find it and we discover what's true in history through investigation, having multiple sources, the application of reason. It's a very scientific process. So when I say something has happened in the past, I've carefully researched it. Now what is happening in our culture is we're moving away from modern thinking into postmodern thinking. So look at the other extreme of postmodern thinking. And postmodern thinking, truth is personal. It's something that I come to find on my own. Truth is what I experience or I discover about myself or through myself. You see that today in people's experience in their life? That's why today the modern science is really psychology, self-actualization. In other words, if something's true, then it's because I'm experiencing it or I'm changing in some way. We have today what we call a culture of victimization because I'm so focused in on myself and my own experience. The other side of postmodernism today, though, is that the supernatural is very real. People today are more and more open to supernatural things. They don't push that away. And now here's the important part. When it comes to history, 
If you push postmodernism to its thinking that everything is relative and it's personal and truth is personal, then we have what is today called revisionist history, which is basically that history is relative and it's written from a person's own perspective. So all perspectives are equally legitimate. In other words, I'm not searching and digging and hunting scientifically for what the truth is about the past. What happened in the past is what I kind of feel that maybe has happened in the past. (laughs) Does that make sense? And so what I want you to know about the Da Vinci Code is no matter what Dan Brown says or what you hear about it or what you read in the book, his thinking is at the very extreme end of postmodern thinking. That's really where he's at. Here's something from his website. He has a frequently asked questions page. A person wrote to him, some of the history in this novel contradicts what I learned in school. What should I believe? Notice what he says. Since the beginning of recorded time, history has been written by the winners, those societies and belief systems that conquered and survived. Despite an obvious bias in this accounting method, we still measure the historical accuracy of a given concept by examining how well it it concurs with our existing historical record. Many historians now believe, as do I, that engaging the historical accuracy of a given concept, we should first ask ourselves a far deeper question. How historically accurate is history itself? (laughs) You can laugh at this, okay? (laughs) Do you see where he's coming from? Everything to him, notice that he puts quotes around the words historical accuracy. To him, to say that something has definitely happened in the past, we can know it for sure, he doesn't buy that. To him, history is something that is just written by people who want to promote their point of view. So it's equally legitimate for him to write history the way he wants to and promote his point of view. You see that? So here's the key thing for this book and this movie, that the history presented in the Da Vinci Code movie and book is not objective, researched history. Don't buy it. (laughs) What he's presenting as history is not researched history. It's not been studied at all. He was on the Today Show, and you can look at this again on his website when he talked about this book, and he'll tell you that it was full of historical facts, that all the things that he presents in the book, the secret societies, all these different things are historical fact. That's the way he put it. But what he means by historical fact is not what you and I think of when we think of historical fact. We think that it's something that's definite, that's been researched and studied. That's not the way he's approaching it. He's going to write history the way that he wants to write it. The best illustration I could give you is if I were to sit down and write a book about World War II, like a fictional novel, and I made up characters and they're interacting with each other, doing things, maybe there's a murder mystery, whatever it is, but in the background, the history is that the Nazis have taken over America. That's similar to what is taking place in this book. It's okay to write a story with all these fictional characters, but if you have the background that is not accurate history, then you're really deceiving people, and that's what happens in the book. Here's what the Da Vinci Code book actually claims. Here are the claims in the book. The Bible was put together by Constantine, a pagan Roman emperor. That is absolutely untrue. (laughs) That is not historical fact. He was not a pagan, and he didn't put the Bible together. All that is totally false. 
The Gospels have been edited, the biblical Gospels have been edited to support the claims of later Christians. Again, there's no historical proof of that at all. Jesus is not the Son of God. He was only a man. Well, Dan Brown can come to that conclusion if he wants to, but we all need to make a decision about who Jesus was. Jesus was not viewed as God until the 4th century when he was deified by the Emperor Constantine. Again, that is just totally false. Early Christians believed that Jesus was fully God from the very beginning. Jesus was married to Mary Magdalene. In the original Gospels, Mary Magdalene, not Peter, was directed to establish the church. Mary Magdalene was to be worshipped as a goddess. He says that Jesus wanted that to happen. He says, and here's really the backbone of the whole book and movie, there's a secret society called the Priory of Sion that still worships Mary Magdalene as a goddess and is trying to keep that practice alive. That is not historical fact. In fact, what's been proven in the courts is that there were some forgers about 1950 who actually planted these secret documents in the National Library of France and made up this whole idea of a priory of Sion that there are these physical descendants of Jesus and that they're heirs now to the throne of France. And the reason that they did it is the guy who did it was a swindler and he wanted to be able to claim that he should be the rightful king of France today. <laughs> so he went in with some friends who were willing to go in with him on it and they made up all these secret documents and put them in the library, planted them there. And then one of the guys who was in on it was a reporter and he claimed that he discovered them and all this. So they've actually admitted it in the courts that it's a total fraud. And that is the very basis for this whole book and movie, is this group called the Priory of Sion. Furthermore, he goes on to say that Jesus and Mary Magdalene conceived a child and named her Sarah. Sarah gave rise to a prominent family line that is still present in Europe today. And the Catholic Church often has assassinated the descendants of Christ to keep his bloodline from growing. That's what the book claims. I just want you to know what it actually says if you haven't read the book. I've read the book. I haven't seen the movie yet. But this is actually what it claims during the course of it. So this is something that we should know about as Christians so that we have some way to respond to people when we get in a conversation with them. We should know that this is out there. It's affecting people's thinking. Let me just take you through a couple of the things that it brings out. Are there secret Gospels? Dan Brown claims that there are 80 Gospels that were considered for the New Testament and only a relative few were chosen for inclusion, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John among them. And he says these are photocopies, these are characters in his book who are supposed to be historians. These are photocopies of the Nag Hammadi and Dead Sea Scrolls, the earliest Christian records. Troublingly, they do not match up with the Gospels in the Bible. Really what is happening is scholars have known about these Gospels for hundreds of years. You've probably heard of the Gospel of Judas lately. They're what are called Gnostic Gospels. They were written by people who believed in Gnosticism, which is a completely different religion than Christianity. And they just used biblical characters in their religion however they wanted to use them. And they wrote, wrote these Gospels and made them up. And so early Christians rejected these Gospels for good reason, because they weren't written by Christians, by people who even knew Jesus. So there aren't secret Gospels. That's the first point. Gnostic Gospels were written in the 2nd and 3rd centuries to promote Gnosticism, a totally different religion from Christianity. And the 1st century Gospels of the Bible are the best historical record of Jesus and the Christian faith. You can choose to reject that if you want to, but let's at least admit that those are the best historical record of what Jesus did from the people who saw him. 
The second thing, were Jesus and Mary Magdalene a couple? I'll just jump on that there is no historical text in existence that says that Jesus was married to Mary Magdalene. It simply doesn't exist. Dan Brown is making it up. There's nothing out there. There are a couple of Gnostic Gospels, which again were written by a totally different religion in the 2nd and 3rd centuries A.D., and they say that Jesus kissed her, one of them does. But again, these are totally made-up stories about Jesus. They're not even the eyewitness records of him at all. And nothing ever claims that he was married to her. Did Christians believe that Jesus was divine from the beginning? What Dan Brown claims in the book is that Jesus' divinity was made up by Constantine at the Council of Nicaea in 325 A.D. That is totally and completely false. We read the New Testament. When you read your New Testament, you see that even the earliest Christians, like Paul, writing as early as in the 60 A.D., believed that Jesus was fully God. And they always believed that. So Christians have always believed that Jesus was divine from the beginning. And the Council of Nicaea had absolutely nothing to do with that at all, that issue. Dan Brown is just totally making that up. What happened at the Council of Nicaea is they were debating whether he had eternally existed as being fully God. They had no doubt that Jesus was fully God. They just were wondering whether or not the Father created him at some time in eternity past. And that's what they debated. And they voted no, that he didn't. Jesus has always existed eternally. And he's been fully God. Does the church suppress the sacred feminine or goddess worship? The short answer to that is yes. <laughs> right? We don't believe as Christians in worshiping goddesses. We worship Jesus Christ. That's what we do. And the idea that somehow Jesus wanted us to do that is absolutely ridiculous. Jesus was a Jew himself, and they believe in only one true God. In him alone we worship. So we don't believe in any sort of pagan religion. And women are to be treated as equal in nature to men. The goal of Christian churches is not to put down women at all. And in fact, that is not the story of Christianity. Everywhere that Christianity has moved in, women have been elevated in that society. So here's the point. Matthew 22, 36 to 38. Jesus said this, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord God, Lord your God, with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is a great and foremost commandment. Jesus told us to use all of ourselves in worshiping God. He says to use your heart, which is really your emotions, your soul, which is your spirit, your immaterial part of yourself. And notice also he says your mind. See, Jesus didn't try to tell us not to use our thinking or not to use our emotions or our experience. He said use all of it. And that's the great thing about Christianity, that Christianity resonates with truth, both reasonable and experiential. You see, when you read the Da Vinci Code, what Dan Brown wants you to do is not use your brain, basically. (laughs) He wants you just to read it and emotionally respond to it in a postmodern way and say, you know, I think this might be kind of true. I think this is, maybe this over here is true, and then I, would, I like this over here and there. And that's going to be true for me. So that's postmodern thinking. But Jesus says, use everything that God has given you, including your mind. So when Dan Brown says that something has happened in the past, and that didn't correspond with your history book, you ought to go look it up and see if it's really true. Don't just believe it, 
because it resonates with you emotionally. The great thing about Christianity is that you can test it both ways. You can use your mind and you can use your emotions. And you can use your experience. And you see that Christianity proves itself to be true, even in your experience. And we don't have to deny any of that. So we can really be above postmodern and modern thinking. And that's really the challenge that the Da Vinci Code is putting out there today. It's testing us as to how we're going to go about finding out what is true. And as Christians, we need to use everything that God has given us to find the truth and not deny our emotions or our thinking. what Fred had to say, and it's right on. Indeed, hath God said, our gracious God and Father, as we come before you at this moment, we pray that you would continue to help us to focus upon our Savior, Jesus Christ, and upon his word. May we be strengthened for the challenges that we face in this day, for it's in his name and for his sake we pray. Amen. The Da Vinci Code is an attack upon the Word of God and ultimately upon the person and the work of Jesus Christ. The Gospel, according to Judas, that you've heard about, is an attack upon the Word of God and ultimately upon the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Jesus Seminar, led by Robert Funk, and frequently featured by our news media, is an attack upon the Word of God and upon the person and the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. From outrageous stories to unsupported scholarship, to cults that pass themselves off as Christian, to outright religious perversion, and deception, Western culture seems to be single-minded in its attempt to undermine the faith of people in the Word of God and in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That a diabolical person seems clearly to be in control of these developments is beyond question for those of us who do believe. But something we may not have thought about is just where this diabolical person and his kingdom of darkness is going to wage the war. He is not simply marching to take control of the thinking of an ignorant and easily deceived pagan culture in which we live. He is marching to take control of the thinking and the behavior of the church of Jesus Christ. And in spite of the fact that many Christian leaders are speaking out, the Christian community at large remains paralyzed by a culturally driven mindset that says we need to be tolerant. Not simply tolerant in that we believe everyone has a right to believe what they want, but tolerant in the sense that we accept as valid every person's worldview and embrace the good of every religion.
The church is under attack. However, it is filled with believers who are unprepared and unresolved to receive the attack. That's the heart of the problem. The evangelical Christian community, for the most part, cannot tell the difference between a friend and a foe. The evangelical Christian community cannot tell the difference between a shepherd and a CEO. They cannot tell the difference between a false teacher and a faithful teacher. Between a fairy tale and the truth. Satan, kingdom of darkness, has cleverly laid siege to the church of our Lord Jesus Christ by attempting, by attempting to weaken the resolve of the resourceful, by undermining the faith of the faithful, and most of all, by driving deep into the church's heart and soul a mindset of toleration so that the church welcomes the teaching of false teachers and readily embraces the heretical ideals and ideas that they perpetrate upon the church until in the course of time the church acts and thinks like the world around it. In an article in Christianity Today, I read that an evangelical church that was having a Da Vinci Code event. They had several panelists give long speeches about how Christians should welcome the Da Vinci Code as an opportunity for dialogue. Then open the floor for questions. A woman began to question and ask this question, and she said, she prefaced her question this way, I don't have any problem with the fact that Jesus had sex. Ask yourself, is the siege working? It will not be the first time a local church or the church at large during a period of its history fell prey to satanic deception, the kingdom of darkness and the heretical ideas and influences that enter the church through the teaching of false teachers who are fighting to capture the hearts and souls of Christians. I invite you to turn with me once again to Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 to 17. We won't finish all the message today. I'll try to figure out where to stop (laughs) in an appropriate place. But let's read the passage. Chapter 2, verses 12 to 17 of Revelation. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword, that's Jesus. I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you have also those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. 
I will give him a white stone, and on that stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. In the midst of the ancient city of Pergamos, one of the most tolerant and broad-minded cities in the ancient world, in the Roman Empire in particular, there was a church, and this was a fervent evangelical Bible-believing church, willing to stand against the horrors of persecution, even to die in the name of Christ. Yet this church, like its counterpart, the city of Pergamos, was very tolerant and accepting. A church that tolerated false teachers in its fellowship, who, like Balaam, encouraged compromise with pagan immorality and idolatry. Furthermore, they also tolerated and accepted other people called the Nicolaitans, who not only wanted Christians entangled in immorality and adultery, but who also sought to conquer their souls and their minds and their hearts and control them for their own ends. And the Lord said, I hate the teaching of the Nicolaitans. What would the Lord Jesus Christ have his church to do in this situation? And we could ask the same question today as we're bombarded with the Da Vinci Code and the Gospel of Judas and all the nonsense that's out there. What would the Lord Jesus Christ have us to do? Now, perhaps it hasn't got entrenched in our local church as it has in the church at Pergamos, but let's broaden it out and include a lot of local churches in which it has become entrenched. What would the Lord Jesus Christ have his people do? His church. Maybe he would like for us to look upon the popularity of these false teachers and use this as a way of attracting more people into the church with the hope that we can win them to Christ. That sounds like the kind of thing that I'm used to hearing. Or maybe he would like, us, like for us to see this as an opportunity to turn the other cheek and show these false teachers what it means to love Jesus. Or maybe he would like for us to plan a debate or a forum, allow the false teachers, invite them to come on over, and, and we'll sit down and sort of hear what they have to say. Hear their ideas, and then we'll have some opposing arguments. Or maybe he'd just like us to ignore the situation and get back and immerse ourselves in the worship of the church and hope that we will keep our focus on Christ. What would the Lord Jesus Christ have his church to do in light of these false teachers who have made themselves at home in the church? He says this, repent. Repent or else I will come to you quickly and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Our Lord Jesus Christ calls upon the church to repent of its sin of toleration of such teachers and their teaching. And if the church does not repent, Jesus warns that otherwise he will deal with these people himself with the sword of his mouth. With his word which will not go forth void. Repent. Acknowledge the sin of being tolerant and accepting of these false teachers. And I'm afraid that all of us to a degree today as believers need to repent where we've listened to those who have misled us willingly given them 
a beachhead in our life. But then he says, repent, continue to repent, continue to turn from the sin. How do you do that? By getting rid of them. Show them the door. Now, in our home, there's one living thing that is not welcome in our home. And my wife is on a hunt to hunt them all down, and that is bugs. If there's an ant that looks like he even is looking at the door or a hole to get in the house, she's called Hydrex to exterminate the ants, to keep them at bay. She hates ants. I say, well, they got to have a place to live. We need to be like my wife. We need to get them out of the church. We need to forsake them if they're implanted in the church. We need to avoid them. This is what the church at Pergamos needed to do. However, history suggests that the local church at Pergamos, if it did attempt to get rid of them, it was likely a half-hearted effort. It was like me taking a can of Raid and going around and shooting a few places where they try to get in the house. Furthermore, the church at Pergamos, as you know, became a prototype for the church during the 4th, 5th, and 6th century of her history, of the whole church. A time in which the church ended up thoroughly married, which is what the word Pergamos means, thoroughly married to the world. And what did that period of time give way to? The Dark Ages, the Middle Ages, as we call it. A time that was so full of corruption and immorality that repentance, for all practical purposes, was impossible. And we'll get to that when we get to the church at Thyatira next fall. Now, in spite of the fact that the church at Pergamos or the church at large during the 4th, 5th, and 6th century did not repent wholeheartedly, of its sin of toleration, there is still hope for individual believers in this church, the church at Pergamos, as well as in other churches where false teachers and false teaching have gotten established where they're tolerated. In other words, the church may not do its job. And there may be false teachers and those who are evil, influential Influential people who are leading the people astray. But individuals within the church can stand up and be counted. They can take a stand. And so our Lord Jesus Christ continues in verse 17 with these words. He, and we, add, we could add here, she or he who has an ear, let him or her hear or respond and obey what the Spirit says to the churches to him who overcomes. The word overcome here is a very interesting word. It's a term used in wrestling at the time in which the New Testament was written. And it meant to gain a superior hold or position over an opponent so as not to allow him to topple you. In this context, it speaks of gaining a superior position from the Word of God so that the believer would not be swept away by a crowd of Christians who have easily succumbed to the teaching and influence of a false teacher. 
And friends, it was a big-time problem there, just as is a big-time problem here. Specifically, in the context of the church of Pergamos, to overcome meant to be victorious over these false teachers, someone who stands his or her ground in the struggle for the minds and the lives of believers. In our own culture, it could speak of someone who refuses to bend the Word of God or bend, bend the Word of God to accommodate the culture. It could speak of someone who continues to worship and serve the Lord Jesus Christ who does not compromise God's truth or accommodates the values of a self-serving culture. I've shared this with you before, but I recall in recent years I've had problems with my wedding ceremony because in the wedding ceremony it has a section there for the wife who, or the bride, which I will love, honor, and obey him in sickness and in health and forsaking all others for him alone. I will perform unto him all the duties that a wife owes her husband. And the wife today looks at that, or the bride today looks at that, and says, there's no way I'm going to obey that guy. And I'm saying right here, it says in the Word of God that you're to submit and obey to your husband, and he's to love and cherish you. I mean, if both are doing their part, it should be a wonderful marriage. No, no, we're not going to have that. That's not what we've been taught in this culture. We're under the influence of the culture to the extreme that the culture drives drives the interpretation of the Scripture. You would not believe the number of false teachers who have tried to reinterpret those Scriptures in the Bible that speak about things just like this. In the most unusual ways, they will try to interpret the Scripture. Why? Because it's driven by the culture. Is that the way God would have us to treat His Word? In the face of a book or a film like the Da Vinci Code, an overcomer would be someone who would not stand up and say, I don't have any problem with the fact that Jesus had sex. First of all, the fact is not a fact. It's somebody's wild imagination that goes against the whole testimony of history. How could a disciple of Jesus Christ capitulate so quickly to a fictitious story that has no basis in reality? It's interesting, usually these are the same Christians who they'll devour a a five... How long is the book of the Da Vinci Code? 500 pages? Something like that? They'll spend time, probably 20, 30 hours, 50 hours, reading a book that's 500 pages long, and yet they've never read the Gospel of John? They've never read the the book of of Genesis? They've never gotten beyond chapter 5? What is this nonsense? And yet it's the Word of God that gives us the superior position that enables us to stand our ground and overcome in these days. In our culture, an overcomer is a high school student who successfully resists being prodded into having premarital sex or taking drugs or whatever. And you'll get the false teacher there. It may be somebody right from your own church, a companion, a friend, who says, you know, we go to the same church. And after all, says the false teacher, this is okay. Jesus wants you to be happy, doesn't He? He wants you to have what you want. He doesn't want you to deny yourself anything, does He? And if you're ready for sex and want it, then have it. Go for it. That's what Jesus wants. That's a false teacher. 
Now, it may be your friend. It may be a companion that you know even in the church. But at that moment, that person has stepped into the role of a false teacher. And the high school student who is going to overcome in that situation is a high school student that's going to say, no sex before marriage. And I'm going to abide by that. It's going to say no drugs. That I'm to give all of my mind and heart to the Lord. No rebellion against the parents because God has said, children, obey your parents, which is right in the Lord. But be prepared if you do that because what they're going to do is they're going to make fun of you. They're going to label you a prude in my day. I don't know what they call you today, but in my day they called you puritanical or a prude, or self-righteous, or judgmental, or whatever. Is it really worth it to endure such a struggle? To stand in some cases against what everybody is saying and doing? To risk being labeled and called names that are less than flattering? Is it really worth it to be an overcomer in this day? To stand against the tide that just seems to be sweeping over churches and Christians all over this country, all over the North America? making us the third largest mission field in the world. Even the Christians need to be evangelized because most of them couldn't give you a clear gospel if you asked them. There is one of the major problems. There's more confusion about the gospel of Jesus Christ today than perhaps has ever been. Is it worth it to stand your ground? To him who overcomes in such churches, Jesus says, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. I will give him a white stone and on the stone a new name which no one knows except him who receives it. What does that mean? Hidden manna, a white stone, a new name written on the stone. Come next week and we'll find out. Our gracious God and Father, I pray that you would Drive home the need that we all have today to stand against a tide of false teaching and evil influences that are sweeping us off our feet as Christians. Oh, Father, help us to anchor our feet clearly in the Bible, the Word of God, to know clearly the gospel by which we are saved, that through faith in Jesus Christ alone we have eternal life. Father, Help us today to be all that you want us to be and to one day experience what you want to give us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to close today with uh, hymn number 400, Glorious Things of Thee Are Spoken. We're going to do verses 1, 3, and 4. So please turn to hymn number 400 and stand. things of the